Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. This sermon was preached in 1976 at the annual camp meeting held at God's Bible School and College in Cincinnati, Ohio by Victor Glenn. It's a powerful message that he titles, I Will Glory in the Cross. I know you'll enjoy this message. Keep passing it on and on, keep passing it on, keep passing it on, keep passing it on and on. I came to God's Bible School the first time as a teenager with my parents. I remember the glory of God, the presence of God, the tremendous preachers preached from this platform, John and Bona Fleming, E.E. E. Shellhammer, Babcock, many others. The same glory that I remember as a boy back in those days is here today. The same God, the same saints of God, Love God with all of their hearts. Thank God for God's Bible School. I wish to express my heartfelt appreciation to all the kindness extended to me and this time while here at the camp, to Reverend Miller, a very close friend of mine, all the others. I pray God's richest blessing upon you. Everywhere I go, I'm telling people, young folks especially, about God's Bible School. I tell them that's where it's at. That doesn't sound proper like it's proper English, but it's it's uh, certainly the, where the where the action is going on. I mentioned yesterday I was in uh, services out near State College, Pennsylvania, just before coming here, and uh, a number of students that attend Penn State University were coming to the to the services, and one young man that had been gloriously saved through through the overcomers. He was a pre-med student just graduating, I guess, the end of last month or the first of this month from pre-med. God had called him to preach. He had two schools that he had in mind. One was God's Bible school, and I won't name the other one. And he said, "Which? what do you think about these two schools? Well, I said, I think they're fine just as long as you go to God's Bible school. I think it's fine. So... Uh, I'm sure he realized my, my advice was a very biased advice, and it, it continues to be so. I do not know when I've had co-workers that I've worked with when I've felt better unity and more love and appreciation than the ones that I've worked with here, Brother Harden that I've known for several years, Brother Willis that I think I'd only met previously one other time, but it seems like I've known him all my life. I told him... The wonderful thing about serving God, you find others of your brothers that you just didn't know too well. And uh, you appreciate them as you realize their love for Jesus Christ. I thank God for Larry and LaDonna 
Thomas for their dedicated lives, their wonderful singing. I've known Sister Thomas's father especially, I suppose since he was a teenager when I first started holding revivals in the church that he attended then and still attends. And uh, I know that they doubtless have a good slate, but you pastors that are considering singers for the future, you ought to talk to Brother and Sister Thomas. So they didn't tell me to say that. I say it because I, I feel that a lot of times good spiritual singers are just a little difficult to find. And uh, I certainly believe it would be a wonderful thing to, uh, to engage them and have them come to your church and then pay them after you have them. <laughs> because too, too many times I, I think they think that the workers, the singers especially, I think get uh, a kind of reception where they appreciate their singing and feel that they're going to live by faith. And uh, it takes sometimes a few dollars along with the faith, quite a few dollars. Well, I believe in God's Bible school with all my heart. I uh, pledge my entire offering that they gave me for, as evangelist of the camp, I pledged $1,000. I know God is going to help me to pay the rest of it. And uh, since I was on a special diet, I even brought my own food. So, you know how bad I wanted to come, how, how much I appreciate the school, how much I appreciate what's going on here. I appreciate Brother Miller. We've been friends for 30 years at least, and I certainly think that God has placed him in this place at a very strategic time. I feel that I'm, I can go all out for God's Bible school. Not only telling young people about the school and getting into the school, but telling people that, that uh, can support to get their money in here, to back this school financially. Now I'd like to give a commercial. I haven't given any commercials, I don't think, during the camp meeting. I promised the beginning that uh, I had no personal motivations, that I wasn't here to promote any of my own causes, and I still am not. And the commercial I have, I, I think, is a very positive one. I thought of these graduating students, and usually about the time of graduation, the news magazines like U.S. News and World Report or Newsweek or Time, it tells about the job opportunities. It tells about the salaries that certain uh, types of graduates can expect to receive, an average at least. And uh, I thought of these students graduating, and I thought I'd drop in a commercial. I know of 24 openings for for graduates from the various college department here. And uh, the pay is very good. It's a hundredfold in this life and eternal life in the world to come. Amen. Serving Jesus Christ out on mission fields. And uh, I just thought I'd drop that in as a commercial. Well, thank God there's not only a place to be trained, but there's a place to do something with your training. And uh, there's a lot of places throughout this world desperately in need of those to carry the glorious gospel of Christ to them. Shall we bow our heads in a moment of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank thee, Lord, for the wonderful visitations of thy spirit. You've come so many, many times throughout this camp meeting. <clears throat> we humbly bow our heads in adoration to thee for thy mercy and thy love and thy blessings. We thank thee, Lord, that Thy glory and thy power is not diminished. Thy saving grace is not diminished.
Thou hast manifested thy presence in saving and sanctifying many, many individuals throughout this camp meeting. I pray thee, Spirit of God, thou shalt touch thy servant once again. Thou shalt give us the help of thy spirit. We must have thee. We must have thy anointing in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a text of scripture before I read it. I would like to mention this Sunday afternoon sometimes after a good meal. It's, it's a strong temptation to take a nap. Well, I don't preach too long, and I've discovered if people are aroused in the middle of a the nap, they're unhappy the rest of the day. They're kind of hard to get along with. So I wouldn't recommend that you take a nap because probably before you get through, I'll, I'll, I'll be through. So try your best to stay awake. In the epistle to the Galatians, the 6th chapter and the 14th verse, we have these words, but God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. We immediately recognize these as the writings or the words of Paul. Paul was one of the most outstanding of the apostles. Though not one of the original apostles, he tells us he is an apostle born out of due season or chosen out of due season. Paul was unsurpassed by any of the others in that early day. Paul was great in three essentials of greatness. First of all, he had a great intellect, a great mind. Second, he had a great heart, a heart that was filled with compassion and concern for a lost and perishing world. Third, he was great in his achievements. There were many things in which Paul could have gloried at the time that he spoke these words. He could have gloried in his education. He had sat at the feet of Gamaliel as his teacher. He had had great opportunities in the educational area. He had great gifts. He was a great writer, a great preacher, a great organizer, an untiring laborer for Christ. He could have gloried in his national privileges. He was a Jew born in Tarsus, a Greek, a Greek city, under Roman protection. You remember when Paul's persecutors trembled when they learned that he was a free-born Roman citizen. He had so many things that he could have gloried in. Yet he said, I glory in nothing save in the cross of Jesus Christ. I've, I've heard the song that was just sung by the choir and by brother and sister Thomas several different times, the Statue of Liberty. Maybe my mind was somewhere else when part of it was sung, but I love that part when it said, the cross is my Statue of Liberty. The cross is my Statue of Liberty. And amid all the things that he could have gloried in, he gloried in nothing save in the cross of Jesus Christ. There were three great forces that reached down not only to Paul's day, but to, but to our day as well. First of all, there was the Hebrew, which stood for religion. There was the Greek, which stood for education. There was Rome, the Roman, which stood for ruling gen uh, genius and for government. Paul stood in the center of all these mighty streams and could have been influenced by all of them. But he said, I glory in nothing save in the cross of Jesus Christ. And my friend, in that day, the cross was the place of punishment for the worst of criminals. It was not something that had any allurement or attraction. 
From a human standpoint, it was repulsive. But to Paul, because of what it stood for and for what it meant, he said, I glory in nothing save in the cross of Jesus Christ. Men of all ages who have amounted to anything for God have been those who have made much of the blood of Jesus Christ. There was Martin Luther who awakened slumbering Europe from its sleep of death by preaching the gospel of the grace of God. I remember being in Rome on a holy year and going to the cathedral of stairs where Martin Luther was crawling up on his knees doing penance when he heard the voice of God saying, the just shall live by faith. And he arose from his knees doing penance to go out and herald the gospel of the grace of God and let men and women know there was power in the precious blood of Christ to save from sin. The poets have sung of this wonderful power of the blood. John Bunyan made the starting city, the starting point for the celestial city, the cross of Jesus Christ. I think of one Bible school president. Every time they would have graduation, he would take each of the ministerial students by the hand as they were handed their diploma. And he'd say, make much of the blood. Make much of the blood. Make much of the blood. For my friend, when you've said it all, unless we have the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, nothing else in all this world avails. You can do anything else you want to, but unless the blood has been applied by faith, all else is in vain. That was the reason Paul was glorying in the cross of Jesus Christ. Yes, this truth has stirred the hearts of men and women down to, across the ages. Throughout the word of God on burning altars of sacrifice as a symbol of the dying lamb upon the cross of Calvary. But I'm glad in the fulfillment of God's time, Jesus Christ dying on the center cross paid the price for your sin penalty and mine. Dying in our stead that we might live eternally. Praise his precious name. I'm glad for the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. I would notice briefly this afternoon some things that people are glory in besides the cross and the blood. Some are glory in riches. And I think someone else during the meeting has mentioned the word of God does not say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money. The love of money. And my friend, many a person has sold out for temporal gain. In the past few weeks, we've had two of the richest men in the world to die. Howard Hughes died. They don't know for sure how much his wealth consisted of. Wills are turning up from every direction. I listened to the news before coming to service. J. Paul Getty had just died. The richest man in the world. Two of the richest men in the world have just passed into eternity. And where did they go? How much money, how much did their money accomplish? How much did it gain? 
Howard Hughes was so afraid that people would take advantage of him, he became a recluse. He hid from the public. He wouldn't want anyone around him but a select few. He was afraid of germs. He was afraid someone would get his money. He was afraid of being cheated. What a miserable life to live. My friend, I'd rather have the joys of sins forgiven and know my, my, my sins have been washed away whether I had any of this world's goods or not and to know that my name was written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Preacher went to visit one of his wealthy parishioners. He took him out after, after the dinner meal, after the noon meal. He showed him his land as far as I could see. This is my land. That direction, that direction, that direction, and this. Every direction, it's my land. It's my land. That's my cattle. That's my corn land. That's where I grow my wheat. All of it's mine, as far as I can see. And that pastor stood with bowed head for a few moments. And then he stopped and asked a question. He said, you tell me you own as far as I can see in that way, and this way, and that way, and this other direction, north, south, east, and west. But sir, would you answer me this? How much do you own this direction? How much do you own in this direction? I know some saints of God that hardly own anything as far as temporal and material things are concerned that have riches untold in that direction. Amen. My friend, you sell your soul for the things that are material. And you lose out. You lose out. A number of years ago, some folks came to me and wanted me to come to their camp as evangelist. They told me that the last evangelist, this was quite a few years ago, and this was a sizable amount of money. They said we paid our last evangelist $1,200. I'm sure we can pay you that much if you'll come to our camp. I looked at my schedule, my dates, and I had that time booked at a camp that if they would give me $125, I, I'd be very fortunate. I said, no, I'm sorry, I can't go. I made a covenant with God a long while ago that he, he would bless my ministry. I would never change one single date for financial advantage. Why they said we don't understand it. This place that you're booked, are they going to pay you as much as we will? No, I, I don't think they are. But I said that doesn't even enter into the, into the matter. That doesn't enter into it. Why he said if I would come to you because you pay me more than they were willing to pay me. What if someone else came along and offered me more than what you were willing to pay me? What would happen then? I've talked to pastors and they felt a very, very heavy burden to change churches. I discovered the burden consists of the fact the church they wanted to change to paid twice as much as the one that they were in. I want to say, my friend, you better, you better be careful about changing wherever you go if it has anything to do with dollars. 
You can get out of God's will and, and lose the blessing and anointing of God. Oh, that God would help us to see the things of time shall pass away. Nothing that men sell their souls for is worth anything. God help us in Jesus' name when you come down to die. So there I won't say this man's land went so far this way and so far that way. They won't say this man had so much of the bank. They won't say this man had so many bonds or stocks. No. They'll say six feet of earth makes us all of one side. Oh, that God would help us to keep in perspective material things. I tell you, this thing is crowding in on so many. So many pastors today are so busy with second and third jobs that they are neglecting woefully their churches. My friend, if God called you to preach, you better preach. Or you'll go to hell if you don't preach. For the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. God doesn't change. My friend, if you sell out for monetary reasons, your soul is in deadly danger. Many are glorying in the material things of this world. Some are glorying in power. Alexander the Great conquered the world at the age of 30, some years of age. He wept for other worlds to conquer. But he couldn't conquer sin in his own life, which took his life while still in his 30s. Napoleon's gun carriages rolled across Europe till he conquered most of Europe. When he died as a prisoner on St. Helena's Island, all he had of his former glory and power his old army boots. They said he put those old muddy army boots on the bed by his side as he died. How fleeting the power of this world is. President Nixon one day was a hero and the next day was a heel. How fleeting the power of this world is. Ah, uh, my friend, I'm not going to sell out for earthly prestige, earthly power. I'm interested in another kind of power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Ye shall receive power from on high. That's the kind of power I want. That's the kind of power God has given me. Oh, that's the power that will last when worlds are on fire, when suns have grown dim, when stars have fallen from their heavenly sockets, that power of the Holy Ghost in your heart, in your life. The power of God. The power of God. Then some glory in their homes. Someone has said a home is a child's heaven, or at least it ought to be. The tragedy of our day is the breakdown in the home. We expect the teachers to do in school what the parents should have done at home. My friend, God has made very sacred the unit of the home. 
The family unit is the bulwark of any nation. Let there be a breakup in the home and every other aspect of that civilization will crumble. If the home breaks up, and it's breaking up on too many occasions today, thank God for godly homes. Thank God for those that have a home where Christ was honored and there was a family altar in that home. I think of that song that has touched the tenderest chord of the human heart. Be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. No place like home. John Payne, who wrote those words, I'm told, did not have an earthly home. He was a stranger and a pilgrim. Maybe he wasn't writing about an earthly home. Maybe he was writing about a heavenly home. Homesickness. Have you ever been homesick? Do you know what it is to be a thousand miles from home and want to see your loved ones? The cards will pull. I want to say, my friend, with all the love and the affection that your home and my home may have had, death finally enters in and breaks that circle. But I'm glad there is a home beyond the river. Hallelujah. There is a home beyond this world of tears. There is a home beyond the graveyards and cemeteries. There is a home beyond the hospitals and all the sadness of this world. There is a home beyond this, the river of life. Praise God forever. That was what Frances Willard was speaking about when dying, when she said, I have crept in with mother and all is well. That's what, Thomas, that's what General Jackson meant when he was dying on the battlefield. And he said to the soldier boys around him, let's cross that beautiful river and rest under the shade of the evergreen trees. My wife's father was dying. My wife was the only one of his children that was there by his side. The others did not know he was so near death. She was the only one there. In a few moments, he was lucid up to his almost his last breath. A few moments before he died, he called her name and said, Jenny, do you see mother? Do you see mother? Her mother had been dead for a few years and gone home to heaven. He called his wife's name, my wife's mother's name, and she said, Dad, what, what, what do you mean? What do you say? Oh, he said, she's here by my side. She's right here in the room with me. She's right here. And my wife said, I looked, but I couldn't see her. I looked, but I couldn't see her. It was only a matter of moments until she was taken, he was taken away. God had given him a preview of that home beyond the river. That city where they need no sound. That city that hath foundation, whose builder and maker is God. That city that John the Revelator saw, that innumerable company praising God and the Lamb, waving palms of victory as they stood on the sea of glass. 
unto him that had washed them in, their, in his own precious blood. Thank God forever that home that every child of God can dwell in eternally. We may have but a tent or a cottage down here but despised by those who pass by. But thank God he's building a mansion for me in the sky. Amen. The way of the cross leads home. The way of the cross leads home. Praise his name forever. An old saint of God was dying. Her unsaved sons, great big stalwart men, came to stand by mother's bedside in her dying hours. They had faith in her, but they wouldn't get saved. One of them said to the other, ask mother how it is. She's getting ready to cross the river. He bent over and whispered in her ear and asked her how it was. He looked up with a look of disappointment on his face. They said, what did she say? I'm not sure I understood her. I, I hope I didn't. I hope I didn't. The other brother said, let me ask her. And he spoke a little louder. Mother, how is it? While we have not followed your God, we, we do have faith in you. Does God stand with you in this hour? She spoke up a little louder. The first brother had thought she was saying she was sorry. What she was saying was it's solid. It's solid. My anchor holds. My anchor holds. My anchor holds, sons. It's solid. My anchor holds. Praise God forever. The saints of God have shouted his praise as they came down to the crossing of the river and have seen the lights of that new Jerusalem, that heavenly city. Oh, what a day that shall be. Talk about trials and tests. We'll forget them all. In a moment of time, we'll not remember one single trial or test we ever had to pass through. One glimpse of the city will take care of it all. And if that doesn't, one glimpse of his face will take care of it all. 1946, I went to Egypt by ship. It was the first ship that would allow civilians to travel after the Second World War. It was a ship that older folks would remember its name. Its name was the Gritzholm. It was used for repatriation work. Repatriating American citizens from concentration camps both in Germany and Japan and other parts of Asia. In my anxiety and eagerness to get to Egypt, I forgot to inquire about getting back. And all I made arrangements for was one way. Well, I got over there and I heard that transportation had a heavy backlog. So I thought I'd better find out how soon I could get a return reservation. Shipping agents weren't handling it. And travel agents weren't handling it. You had to go to the State Department, the embassy, to get any bookings at all. So I, with the preacher that was with me, we went to see the American consul. And we said, we want to go back to the United States. When do you want to go back? We planned to stay one month. We told him one month we want to go back. I can see him yet as he 
looked back and just roared and laughed. He said, do you realize there's over 3,000 people ahead of you? You'll be lucky if you get back in two years, much less one month. Well, I said, sir, would you get our names on the list as soon as possible? I didn't feel like I wanted to stand in a line that was over 3,000 long. I prayed. I said, Lord, you know I need to go back. This pastor, he can't be away two years from his church. He might not even have a pastor when he gets back. Oh, God, you can undertake and work this situation out. Exactly one month of the day. I don't know what those 3,000 did, but I know what we did. We, we marked up, marched up the gangplank of that troop ship and sailed for the United States. I, I don't know about the others, but I know what God did for us. We didn't pull any wires. We didn't wire our senator or our congressman. I knew the senator at that time, one of the senators from Indiana. I didn't get in touch with him. I said, God, it's in your hands. If you want me back in a month, you work it out. Well, we marched up the gangplank in exactly one month of the day. We set sail on this troop ship was about 100 civilian, maybe 200. And the rest were troops going back after combat. Some of them had combat stripes up and down both arms full length. Some of them had gone in the North African invasion. After fighting there had crossed into Sicily and fought in Sicily up through Italy and then on into Europe, other parts of Europe. Some of them told me of seeing buddies shot on the right side and on the left side. Some of them, their nerves were so shattered they could hardly drink a glass of water. Some of them had fought through most of the war. As usual, the uh, armed forces don't work things out too clearly. They didn't make any provisions at all to feed us or to uh, make any provision for our care. So the captain got us all together. I think there was 200 civilians and he pointed at three of us, and I was one of the three. He said, you're the chairman of this three committee of three, and you have the obligation to see that they have someone to cook for them and someone to take care of, of their various needs. And we took a vote on what's, what we were going to do, and everybody voted we'll hire uh, the boys in the service that they'd cook for us, and we paid them. They all voted to pay, and we'd pay them. Nobody wanted to do their own cooking. The only problem was nobody wanted to pay. They all wanted someone to do the service, but no one wanted to pay. One of my colleagues, one of the three in that committee, was a Jewish rabbi. I put him in charge of finances. <laughs> I said, sir, it's your job to collect that money. So we'll have the money to pay these fellows. But they were getting a little agitated already. They were just about ready to clean up on the whole, whole civilian outfit. For a lot of them, the civilians were not Americans. They were coming from various countries, exchange students and doctors coming for graduate work and, and people coming. There was princes from Saudi Arabia. I, I remember they gave some of those princes some royal treatment. They had the rest of us all in one little compartment. We were in there as tight as sardines. They took these princes up and gave them the best in that ship, but they only stayed there one night. 
The soldiers on that ship got so agitated, they said to the captain, you either bring them down with the other civilians or when you get up tomorrow morning, they won't be on the ship. And so I saw them march up with their suitcases and I saw them march down with their suitcases. But as we traveled, the storms raged and I think I went through one of the worst storms I've ever gone through. For days, you couldn't talk about standing in the mess line. It didn't matter really whether it had anyone to cook for us or not. We couldn't even stand up. A few of us tried it and You'd hit one of those great big waves and your tray and its food would go sailing for about 50 feet down the line, almost drowning someone that it hit. Some of the boys got broken arms. Some of them got broken legs. Some of them got brain concussions hitting their heads as those waves would, would strike with such force against the bulkhead somewhere. And as that storm raged and we had those bunks that were four high, if any of you have been on troop ships, you know what I'm talking about. You didn't sleep, you just hung on. I remember one fellow that, a Jewish boy, he got so frightened. He said to me, do you think this thing's going down? I said, I sure hope it doesn't. He finally got so frightened, he said, I want off of here. I said, I can't see anybody holding you, help yourself. But he stayed on with the rest of us. We almost hit a landmine, or rather a mine that was out at sea. We just barely missed it. One of the soldiers said, it's a good thing we missed that. That would have held us up a while. I said, held us up. We'd been at the bottom in about two or three minutes if we'd have hit that. But through the storms we sailed, through the dangers we sailed, through the sickness we sailed. I saw one time there was about eight or ten exchange doctors on there coming for graduate work. I saw those doctors so sick they couldn't stand on their feet. Talk about treating patients. They, they were so sick themselves they needed a doctor. But through the storms as they raged, we got closer and closer to the shores of home. It took us two weeks. We didn't stop. And as we got closer, the excitement and the tension on that ship began to rise. I can't explain it to you. Some of those fellows had been overseas for maybe 30 months or longer. Some of them had faced death on dozens of occasions. As we got closer and closer, until they would stand out on the deck and strain their eyes to see the shoreline of New York. I'll never forget that day when finally in the distance, you could see the shoreline. Everybody was on topside. Everybody was standing there. And as we got closer and closer, that excitement rose higher and higher and higher. And that tension rose. I saw men that were almost ready, got so angry on the trip that they were ready to kill somebody. I saw them stand and weep like babies. They said, that's home. That's home. That's home. I had some of them turn to me. They said, Reverend, is that New York City? I said, that's what they say. As we saw the outline of the skyscrapers of the distance. You really mean it? Yes, that's what they say. We got to the harbor too late. They would not let us dock that night. We had to wait outside the harbor. But believe me, they didn't have any trouble getting anybody topside the next morning. Everybody was there. A little 
USO ship came out bedecked with the stars and the stripes, playing patriotic music, the stars and the stripes and the star-spangled banner. And those boys stood there at the banister of the deck and wept like babies. The, the, the horns of the ships were tooting and the, the, the noise was tremendous. A welcome home. I turned to this pastor and I said, Friend, this isn't for us. We weren't in the war. This was for the boys. This was for the boys that fought. This was for the ones that endangered their lives. This is the reason the flags are flying and the music is playing because they're coming home. And I declare when some of them marched down the gangplank, they kissed the ground. They were so glad to be home. But I said to my preacher friends, one of these days, one of these days, the old ship of Zion is going to sail to the city harbor. One of these days, the saints of God of all ages shall reach its entrance. The battle-scarred veterans, those who were wounded in combat, those who fought the good fight of faith, and their will be the welcome in the city. Oh, what a day that will be. I'm sure this stammering tongue of mine could not begin to describe. I do not possess the adjectives or the, or the words to describe the grandeur of that day when our feet shall finally press the shores of sweet deliverance and we can shout with the redeemed, I'm home at last. I'm home at last. I'm home at last. I've traveled over this world by almost ever conceivable method of travel. I've traveled on the fastest of jets except this latest supersonic one. I've traveled by camelback and horseback and donkeyback and by foot and by car and by bus. I've lived out of a suitcase. When my children were growing up, I was away from home trying to do my best in God's cause the bigger part of the time, I suppose, when they needed me most. I can't describe to you the homesickness that I've gone through, but it'll mean nothing when I get to the city. It'll mean nothing when I get to the city. Amen. When I've packed my suitcase for the last time, when I've preached in my last revival or camp, when I've raised the last missionary dollar, when I've helped the last missionary get to a mission field, when I've preached on the last broadcast, oh, hallelujah, Brother Miller, when my feet shall press the streets of the homeland, what a day that shall be! What a day that shall be! Home at last! Home at last! By the grace of God, I mean to make it. By his grace, I mean to press the streets of the city. My feet shall press the streets of the city. And then the toils of the road will seem nothing. But I get to the end of the way. The mountains that seem so steep down here and the adversities that seem so hard will seem as nothing when I see his face. And if I could just hear him say, well done, 
Thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joys of thy Lord. Oh, what a day that will be. What a day that will be. Paul said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ. The way of the cross leads home. I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fire. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855, USA. I don't